This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Your radio doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on your radio doctor. Always consult your own physician. Today's program has been pre-recorded. When Recovery Centers of America at Devon opened its campuses on the main line and in South Jersey, they offered a new approach, local addiction treatment led by an expert, caring team of professionals. RCA has since helped thousands and leads the way in innovative programs and exceptional inpatient and outpatient care, all in a beautiful setting that allows for healing and recovery. RCA answers the phone and admits patients 24-7, 365, including the holidays. All admitted patients and staff are routinely tested for COVID-19. Call now at 1-888-RECOVERY. That's 1-888-RECOVERY. Talk Radio 1210. WPHT, WPHT, HD, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia. A radio.com station. From the Malamut and Associates Law Studios, it's time for the Delaware Valley first radio doctor on call every Sunday morning at 10. This is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. Listen, seven months or 10 months is an absolutely exceptional, exceptionally short time frame to produce this vaccine. Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Good morning and welcome on this special Sunday. We're celebrating the first show of our second year on the air. Thank you so much for your support and for sharing the news about our show with your families and friends. Right now, football fans across the country are gearing up for the big game tonight. And after you watch these elite athletes, you may be inspired to get back on track, back in shape, especially if you've gained a COVID 10 or 15. So I thought it'd be fitting to talk about weekend warriors today and learn about ways to get back in the game while avoiding injury. You'll also hear about the most common sports injuries for people of various ages. Our very special guest is Dr. Christopher Dodson a highly respected board-certified sports medicine surgeon at Rothman Orthopedic Institute, also an associate professor of orthopedic surgery at Thomas Jefferson University. He is the head orthopedic surgeon for the Philadelphia Eagles and the head team physician for the Philadelphia 76ers, previously assistant team physician for the Philadelphia Flyers, and is currently a consultant for the LA Dodgers, the Pittsburgh Pirates, the NHL, along with local college teams. Dr. Dodson has authored, authored over 80 articles and book chapters related to sports medicine, and consistently he's recognized as a top doctor in the region. What a treat to have you as a guest. Welcome, Chris. Thanks for joining us. Marianne, thank you so much for having me. It's certainly my pleasure to be here. Uh, so let's begin with weekend warriors, as we say. Maybe we think of an amateur athlete, somebody who's in the working world with a growing family, and at a certain point, he or she will notice a belly or a certain dress or favorite pants are tight, and we become a sedentary workforce in front of a computer, especially now with so many Zoom meetings during the pandemic. They start with a rather strenuous physical activity only on weekends or part-time, but sometimes with a little too much enthusiasm. So what are some basic tips for somebody getting back out there, Chris? So the first thing I always tell um, uh, patients or whenever I give uh, talks, because uh, sort of the weekend warrior injury is something that I get asked to talk about a lot is you don't want to be a weekend warrior. So the term weekend warrior implies that um, the you know, people tend to fit most of their workouts in just the weekend. And so what you'd like to do is spread your workouts throughout the week because you know, the body's more susceptible to injury 
with these extreme workouts in a short window. So sort of being sedentary Monday through Friday and then doing a lot of working out Saturday and Sunday is not how uh, the body really likes to respond to the stress. So I, I sort of have um, come up with sort of six keys to preventing sort of the common weekend warrior injuries I see. Um, the first one is to build up activity slowly. Um, the second one is to make sure you warm up before you do the activity. Uh, and that includes stretching, which is the third one. You want to use proper technique and equipment. So for my avid tennis players or squash players or golfers, make sure you're using the equipment that is appropriate for you. Uh, and certainly a local professional or uh, someone at a store can help you with that. You want to find an exercise program. So I think having an exercise program that you can follow uh, is much easier than trying to come up with on your own. And the last thing I always say is, you know, there's this expression, no pain, no gain. We well, don't really want to follow that, especially as we're all getting a, bit, a little bit older. Uh, you don't want to push through pain, listen to your body. Uh, and if you can do those six things, I think it really can prevent a lot of things I see. That's such a good point about the pain because, uh, you know, uh, every once in a while I'll do a walk around the block or something pretty minimal. And my son will say, did you sweat, mom? Are you in pain now? I'm like, no. <laughs> and I think, too, especially if somebody's older, should they get a medical checkup first if they're a little bit older and they have high blood pressure or any reason to, hey, I haven't seen the doctor in five or six years and I feel fine, but how do we know if you have a, a heart that's in shape for what you're facing? So what might be the three most common injuries you do see? Yeah, so in general, I would say that, you know, I kind of break it down as following, you know, I, I tend to see muscle strains, uh, I tend to see ligament tears, uh, I see tendon injuries, and then the last thing is kind of, you know, the overuse or what I call tendonitis. So, you know, it's ski season right now, unfortunately, uh, I'm seeing a lot of uh, anterior cruciate ligament or ACL tears and skiers. I'm an avid skier as well, so is my whole family. Um, so that's a very common thing I see, um, rotator cuff tears, and shoulders is another common injury, particularly in the patients, you know, in that 50 plus category. Uh, I see a young, I see a lot of young athletes with uh, what I call recurrent instability or shoulder instability uh, and have a labral tear uh, is another injury I see. And then um, some of the less dramatic things, you know, uh, tennis elbow, uh, golfer's elbow, um, you know, which are basically tendonitis injuries of the, of the elbow or tendonitis of the knee. Those are the kind of, kind of less common things I see uh, because I'm a surgeon. Uh, but I still occasionally see them as well. So one of the things that uh, a listener might keep in mind is, or, or I guess I should ask you, is it better to go back to what you know? If you rode in college, you know the form. Uh, you're not going to hurt your back as likely as somebody who buys a rowing machine for Christmas and then just jumps on there. And runners, ice hockey, all the things that people might think to try for the first time. Form is so important in the safety, Yes. I think that's 100% true, and I think it's a great point. I think in general, if you are aware of the exercise or have done it in the past, um, going back to that makes a lot of sense because you are aware of sort of uh, some of the issues that can, can pop up if you have bad form or certainly if you've done a lot of exercises in the past or even played a team sport or uh, a lot of times you're aware of some of the issues that can occur, and so you're less likely to kind of run into them because you, you know what to avoid. You know, having said that, I mean, I, I do encourage people to, pick up new things and try new things. I think, you know, I was a, I played division one soccer and lacrosse and, and certainly, um, uh, excuse me, division one soccer in college. I certainly cannot go back to that, 
uh, now, so I've tried new things, but um, you just got to be careful and kind of ease yourself into it. Well, I think, too, you mentioned a really good point earlier about your equipment, but that also includes the correct shoes. Uh, you know, you don't want, if you have, you know, tired old sneakers, you don't want to go back and start running without good support. Your feet are the foundation of your whole cathedral, yes? Absolutely. And, and, and for my runners out there, I encourage all runners to invest in a good pair of running shoes. There are a lot of stores right now that can help you with that. And I've, uh, I have a lot of great podiatry colleagues who are very good at uh, making orthotics. I, I highly encourage my runners to get orthotics to make sure that when they are running, um, that their foot is in a good position, because certainly uh, we all tend to have... Um, you know, either flat feet or high arches, et cetera. And uh, when we run, uh, some of those baseline issues can lead to um, some of the problems that I see in runners. So I, I highly recommend that uh, they get good shoes and certainly look into getting a good pair of orthotics. Mm -hmm. Good shoes will protect your knees and your hips and everything combined. So are there some sports safer than others? I often hear uh, people say, yes, you want to get back out and walk and run. Is it safer to go outside than to use a treadmill? Do you have any reservations about too much time on treadmill for your knees? No, I, I don't. I think as long as you mix it up, I think just doing, I think I would recommend not doing just one exercise. So, you know, we, turn, we use the term cross train. You want to make sure that your, your tendons and your joints, your ligaments are exposed to different types of load, um, not just one, you know, constant uh, uh, load. Um, so that, you know, if you do running one day, maybe you do spinning another day, maybe you do a strength workout one day, maybe you do a, a yoga or a stretch one day. I think that's kind of a good program, not just purely being a runner or purely being a cyclist. Mm -hmm. Great information from Dr. Chris Dodson, and we'll be back after the break. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. If you have a question for the medical mailbag, just send a note to doctor at yourradiodoctor.net. And we're back with Dr. Chris Dodson from Rothman Orthopedic Institute. Chris, one of the most common injuries you mentioned is tears of the meniscus, and I'm sure they can come uh and cause acute pain after a recent trauma, or maybe from overuse. Somebody's a seasoned athlete, but they do their first marathon, either on foot or on bike. Or maybe they don't have trauma, but they have an effusion, or they might have knee pain referred from elsewhere. Could you tell the listeners exactly what a meniscus is? I always think of it as a brake pad between your big femur or thigh bone and the tibia. Maybe you have a more scientific explanation for what it is. No, I, I, I love that. In fact, I actually tell patients sometimes, you know, the brake pad's a little thin. So I, I think the concept of a brake pad is a, is a really good one. It's basically a meniscus is, you know, collagen. Uh, it's, uh, we, we like to think of it as sort of the soft cartilage as opposed to your articular cartilage, the hard cartilage. But it's the soft cartilage that sits between, you know, you're exactly right, the femur and the tibia. It acts as a, as a cushion, as a shock absorber. You know, as we load it, it actually tends to, uh, it tends to disperse some water uh, and then it kind of fills back up. So it's almost like a spongy substance and really is responsible for protecting the two ends of the bone uh, and preventing erosion, which is effectively osteoarthritis. I never heard of the fluid part of it. That's fascinating. But, um, and I guess it typically occurs when you, you have a twist or you rotate when you're playing a sport or, or maybe not. I guess in older people, it might happen a little more easily. Yeah, so, so the water thing's important because um, that's how, you know, people always say to me, well, how did I tear my meniscus? I don't remember anything. Mm -hmm. You know, certainly when we're younger, 
uh, most meniscus tears that I see in younger athletes and younger patients is traumatic. They remember one episode on a, a sports field or a basketball court or squash court. They twisted their knee, they had swelling, and they had an acute injury. A lot of times as we all age, you know, that water content I was talking about, the meniscus loses that water content uh, as a part of the aging process. So it becomes a little more brittle. And so that makes it more susceptible to tear sort of more atraumatically or as a process of just aging. And so in my younger patients, they typically always remember an episode. I have some other patients who are older who may remember episode or may remember or may not remember one and just say, I don't remember what happened, but now I'm just having pain and experiencing issues. And I always tell them that's how that can happen more atraumatically. Mm -hmm. And I know we chatted the other day and you explained that the blood supply to some areas of the meniscus isn't as great. And that's why sometimes rest and exercise, the meniscus doesn't always heal by itself. So we now have the luxury of MRIs and the imagery is so sensitive and so uh, good at picking up fine detail. When do you look at a finding on an MRI and say, this is significant or it's not? How do you use that to decide the treatment? Yeah, great question. So first and foremost, you have to examine the patient first and listen to what they have to say. What are their symptoms? Are they experiencing what I call mechanical symptoms like locking or catching? Is it just simply pain? Is it just simply something doesn't quite feel right? Sometimes patients just complain of swelling with no pain, but my knee swelling. So that's first and foremost. And then where's the location of their pain? Is their pain located on what we call the joint line, either medial or lateral? That's where the meniscus or the menisci sit. Is that their location of their pain? And so when you are your arm with that information, then you say, okay, now that I know what the patient is feeling and where they're feeling it, can I now look at an MRI and see if I can link the two up and make sense? Mm -hmm. So at that point, when I look at the MRI, what I'm looking at is to trying to determine a couple things. Number one, what's the surrounding compartment around the meniscus tear? So as we all age and a lot of us develop arthritis in our knees, which is very common, that joint narrows and the bones become closer together. And so the meniscus, which sits in between the two of them, uh, tears, but that's really a more of an arthritic problem. And so if, if the problem of the tearing the meniscus is related to the joint narrowing and arthritis, that's one where I think that's more of an atraumatic tear. And I'm not sure, uh, that arthroscopy or, you know, trimming that piece out will help that patient because it's more of a really arthritic problem. Uh, if I see a good looking joint, I don't see, um, things like bone bruising or narrowing or osteophyte formation, which are all these words we use to describe arthritis and MRI. Then, and the patient's having mechanical symptoms, and I see what I call displacement or a piece of meniscus torn away from itself, then that would be someone that I would say, you know, if you've tried conservative treatment and haven't improved, then knee arthroscopy, and typically um, we do a metastectomy in, in patients uh, who are older, um, we typically would be successful. And I'll just add, the way that we determine whether or not your meniscus can be trimmed or repaired is exactly what you said, the blood supply. So I always tell patients, think about the menisci C-shaped and the, um, the blood supply comes in the con convex part of the C. And so if the tear is on the concave part of the inner part, if we try to stitch it, it wouldn't really heal. So that's where we trim it. When the tear is in the periphery, and that tends to happen a lot younger patients, then we do stitch it because we think the blood supply can allow the meniscus to heal. They were the clearest explanations I have ever heard of why somebody might have a repair with sutures or remove the torn segment 
That is so clear because, you know, people have it. We all have a tendency to talk to friends. I had knee surgery. Did you have knee surgery? And and it's those nuances um, that that make the difference. And that's why we're so fortunate to have you explaining it and you right here in Philadelphia, because you want to see somebody when you have an issue like this who really pays attention to those nuances. So I guess you already answered my question. Um, so somebody might have a degenerative or an aging meniscal tear. You don't always operate. And if somebody does have their whole meniscus removed, does it increase their risk for developing arthritis? Do we think now it's metal to metal? You know, the brakes are no pad at all. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, certainly um, we're very conscious about how much meniscus we remove because we do know that um, the more meniscus you remove, the less brake pad and the more likely they will develop um, sort of an increased low neck apartment and ultimately leading to osteoarthritis. I always remind patients, you know, in, a, in the concept of a meniscus tear, the patients always say, well, don't I need that meniscus, which is always a great question. And I always say, yes, you do. But right now that meniscus isn't helping you. It's causing symptoms. Mm. And whether or not I leave that meniscus behind versus trim it is no different because that portion of the brake pad is not working. It's not doing its job. So leaving behind torn meniscus is not beneficial than trimming it out. And if it's causing irritation in your knee, then that's why we trim it. Mm. Having said that, you want to be cautious of how much you take out. And that's why in more peripheral tears, we do tend to stitch it because we think there's a good chance that we can get it to heal. And certainly taking out that much meniscus, because to get to the periphery, you are going through a lot of meniscus, would, would likely lead the patient to have arthritis. So those are the kind of the nuances um, of it. And I'll add one more thing. You know, I feel very strongly about this. You know, some of the patients that I see who are a little bit older have this degenerative menisci, you know, it's a lesson we've all probably learned once or twice as surgeons. It's humbling. You know, if it was a matter of not making the patient worse, but just trying to make them better, I think we could all live with that. But if you are operating in these cases with a degenerative meniscus, where the issue is sort of what I call early arthritis or narrowing of the compartment, and you trim meniscus away, I think you might speed that process up. So that's why you've got to be very careful. You don't want to speed the process up and sort of the patient that has no choice but to get knee replacement. So that's where, you know, really looking at this critically is important. And again, you explained this so clearly. I have a mental image as you're describing these different issues. Now, not everybody can undergo an MR, an MRI, because they might have a pacemaker, a mental implant. So how do you assess them and, and decide their treatment plan? That's a great question. So there are, um, you can get, um, you know, I'm lucky to work at, at great institutions uh, like, like Thomas Jefferson, and we have world-class radiologists. You can get a CT uh, arthrogram, mm. which is where they do a CT scan with some contrast, uh, which can be very helpful. Um, there is some newer technology out there um, where you can do intra-office um, sort of needle arthroscopies, um, which I have done a few times. Um, and so that is another thing that's kind of be on the horizon, the ability to kind of evaluate the knee in the office with a, with a small needle where you look inside and confirm it. But a lot of times CT, um, uh, CT arthrogram is the way to go. I can tell you, I have some patients, I mean, some of the older surgeons would say, how about good old fashioned uh, history and physical? Uh, and, and I've had a couple patients I can think of in the last six months who've had significant meniscus tears uh, which results in something called a, a bucket handle tear of the meniscus, where the meniscus actually swings like a bucket handle and locks the knee. And I can think of two patients who their knee was locked to 90 degrees and they literally could not straighten their knee out enough oh. to get an MRI. Uh, and in that case, I just said to them, you know, 
I've seen this before. I, I really feel confident what you have. Uh, you're not going to be able to straighten it out to get an MRI. They tried. They couldn't. And we just have to, you know, go to the operating room. And those were both cases where the size of meniscus lended itself to being fixed. Uh, I fixed them and, you know, uh, knock on wood, they've, they've both done great. Um, so, so sometimes we do have to go by just clinical suspicion. Mm -hmm. And if somebody thinks they have a meniscal tear or it's been uh, found, the best thing for acute therapy is rest, of course. Don't continue to walk on it. Get some crutches, ice packs for maybe 15 minutes a time every four to six hours. Anything else you'd suggest? Yeah, just uh, some anti-inflammatories. I think you want to avoid certain provocative maneuvers. In general, people tend to tear the meniscus in, the, in what we call the posterior aspect of the meniscus. And so deep squats mm. or flexion past 90 degrees will irritate that. So you really want to avoid that. Uh, and one more thing I'll say, because we haven't said the word x-ray. I do think in these cases, getting an x-ray first is very helpful. You get, you get a good chance to look at the bone, to look at narrowing. And so for me, I always start with an x-ray first to make sure that compartment looks healthy. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Dr. Chris Dodson, and we'll be right back. Today's edition of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross, can be enjoyed on Radio.com. Listen to the show at your convenience. Go to Radio.com and in the search bar, type in Your Radio Doctor. It's health education on demand. Welcome back. We're learning great information from Dr. Chris Dodson of Rothman Orthopedics. Chris, I know one of the things you mentioned at the end of our last segment was not to forget the good old-fashioned x-rays because sometimes when a person has acute knee pain and we think, is it a meniscal tear? Is it an ACL tear? What about a dislocated patella or some other issue that's causing pain in the knee like a fracture? Yeah, in the femur or tibia. I guess it wouldn't necessarily be localized to the knee, but you, you're being thorough by saying, hey, what about an x-ray, right? Absolutely. You, you definitely don't want to miss um, the obvious obvious thing. You know, we certainly have patients who present with, you know, for example, an ACL mechanism. They were skiing, they felt something, and then you get an x-ray, and they have a, a you know, a tibial plateau fracture, which, you know, should be something you should diagnose on an x-ray first. So mm -hmm. you absolutely want to get uh, basic radiographs, make sure everything's reduced, and you get a good look at the architecture of the, of the, of the bone. I remember I was... Uh, uh, helping uh, take care of a patient who was sedated on her side and I was holding her on the stretcher and I extended my knees and I felt a pop. And for a couple of days I had pain and it wasn't bad pain on a scale of 10, it was like a two, but I thought, gee whiz, I better get this checked because if there is <laughs> something out of place, uh, by ignoring it, it can get worse. And it was a torn meniscus for something so simple. You know, I was helping keep a patient on her side. So just stay awake and uh, get checkups when you feel something different. You know your body. So, Chris, Absolutely. we hear a lot about ACL tears, anterior cruciate ligament, in professional athletes and elite super competitive athletes that are college level, even high school level. And I guess that's the most commonly injured ligament in the knee. But I just get sweaty when I, I watch somebody in a game, football, soccer, and their foot's planted on the ground and you see them get hit from the side, not intentionally, and you just cringe. Tell us, let's start with talking about what the ACL is and go on from there. Absolutely. So uh, the ACL, you know, those three letters stand for anterior cruciate uh, ligament. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a ligament that runs uh, in the center of your knee from you know, medial to lateral. 
Uh, and it's really responsible uh, for resisting the tibia or the bottom bone from going forward or, or translating anteriorly and then internally rotating. So that's what it's responsible for. And, you know, it's something I see a, a, an awful lot of. Um, and, you know, it can occur in contact or, not, or non-contact settings. Um, but uh, when it happens, it, you know, the patients typically feel a pop and swelling and can't wait bear. Um, and, and they oftentimes know uh, in the majority of cases surgery is necessary. And why? Do, how do you think most people sustain that ACL tear? Yeah, I think, um, again, in the contact setting, um, sometimes it's just hard luck. Um, valgus, which means when the knee goes inward, so imagine the knees going towards each other, that's kind of a valgus moment, is a very common thing or a common mechanism for ACL injuries. Uh, and so imagine in a football player, if, if someone gets hits on the outside aspect of the knee or a female basketball player, someone, as she's landing, she gets hit on the outside and the knee goes in. Um, you know, the force is such that uh, puts uh, strain on the ligament and a lot of times it's just too great for the ligament and it, and it tears. So that would be in a contact. In the, in the non-contact setting, um, you know, oftentimes it's, it's a planting on the foot, on the ground, and the knee goes inwards, or sometimes on turf, the cleats grab and kind of there's a rotational force. Um, and, and, you know, that's what we see an awful lot of now. Uh, which is certainly concerning, uh, but those are kind of the two classic ways that it occurs. Mm -hmm. And when you, you're taking care of people of all ages, um, is there one group of high school or college athletes uh, in whom you see this injury more often? Yeah, certainly, you know, in general, uh, it's been well published that, you know, female athletes, and I think soccer is kind of the, the big sport, female soccer players tend to tear their ACLs um, more commonly than their male counterparts um, I, I take care of um, a, a lot of, you know, my, my ratio is probably a little more even. I take care of a lot of football players and basketball players, et cetera, um, who also, and, you know, lacrosse players, et cetera. But, you know, young girls tend to have um, more of a risk um, of, of injury this, of this ligament than, than their male counterparts. Uh, that's been well published and well studied. Um, and I can certainly go into that uh, if you like. But that, that's kind of the group that I certainly worry the most about. And the, the young ladies who, pre, who play basketball, too, aren't they uh, at a greater risk than the, their male counterparts? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Female athletes in general. And that, and that has to do with, you know, when you see how female athletes land versus some of their male counterparts. And we've, I was involved in a study when I was a fellow where we looked at this. Their knee tends to go inward or that valgus load I was talking about um, when they land, which is, is a risk factor. And, and the reason why is simply anatomy. You know, women have wider pelvi. Than, than men, uh, because women, you know, give birth. Mm -hmm. And so that wider angle creates a natural uh, angle at the knee or that, or sort of a, a natural vector where the kneecap is, wants to go out to the side and the knee wants to go in the middle. And so that sort of anatomic setup makes them more susceptible um, to, to, to that valgus load when they land. And that's sort of our biggest theory as to why they have such a higher risk factor than, than their male counterparts. That makes perfect sense. I'm wondering too, after listening to your explanations for meniscal tears and now ACL tears, does one injury make the other injury more likely, easier to happen? So if somebody has an ACL tear, might they be at greater risk for a meniscal tear later or is the reverse true? Yeah, that's a good question. So, you know, certainly in an acute setting, it is not uncommon for the, um, for the 
when you tear your ACL to have meniscus pathology. And that's because the translation that occurs to allow the ACL to tear, also the translation can um, affect the menisci. You know, certainly, particularly the medial meniscus, so the medial meaning the inside part of your knee, uh, is responsible for secondary uh, front-to-back translation when the ACL is gone. In other words, Mm -hmm. the the medial meniscus is what's responsible for stability uh, in front-to-back motion. So if you have no ACL, um, a lot of times I'll see patients with chronic ACL tears, they have this sort of chronic medial meniscus tear because that's getting all the load. And, and, and also, you know, after ACL reconstructions, uh, a lot of times the, the graft can be healed, but even if there's any, any subtle laxity in the knee, um, that medial meniscus, particularly in a more chronic setting, tends to, uh, tends to, to take up that secondary front to back load and it's more susceptible to tear. You know, and then lastly, meniscus tears tend to occur in more active people. And so just uh, in the population that we're talking about, you know, people who injure their ACL are very active. They're going to go back to being active as well. Um, and so they just have a more likelihood of, uh, of causing, you know, meniscus tear down the line. If you look at some of the big ACL registry studies, particularly younger athletes, it's a, it's a pretty high percentage of those who do have subsequent meniscus pathology. I think a lot of it has to do with just being active, being young, and having a you know previous history of injury. Sure, and uh, you know if it's if somebody's a college athlete, boy, they want to get back in the game, even if their arms falling off. I had a daughter who was just a warrior and would want to get back in no matter what. Broken nose, dislocated this or that. Um, what about those who might delay their surgery? If somebody has an ACL and they say, you know, it, I can live with this for a little bit, does that put their meniscus at greater risk? It sounds like it does. It, it absolutely does, and and I can tell you, I you know several times a year will perform an ACL reconstruction of someone who's had a chronic tear for a variety of reasons. They mm-hmm. chose to, to wait. And I can always see the appearance of either this kind of chronic peripheral medial meniscus tear, or literally the meniscus has been kind of what I describe as grinded away. So it's mm-hmm. thin, it's attenuated. And I can, you know, always say like, I tell the residents or the fellows, look, that that's how you can tell this is chronic. Like you can see how their meniscus um, ha- has changed over time from seeing this constant load. You know, the other evidence of that is that um, there was a paper uh, out of a, of a children's hospital. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, some children don't have insurance at the time they have surgery. And so they compared um, looking at um, children who had ACL injuries, who had insurance, and were able to do surgery immediately, and those who were not. And they looked at the outcomes. And, and the number one thing they saw was that the, the young kids who eventually did get reconstructions, um, but had it in delayed fashion, had a much higher incidence of meniscus pathology at the time of surgery mm-hmm. than those that didn't. And these were age matched and sort of initial pathology matched patients. So that tells you with prolonged, you know, prolonging the surgery uh, with that instability, how it can affect the uh, surrounding structures uh, and, and cause more, you know, cartilage issues. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. So what are there different options when you go to repair an ACL tear and how do you decide what to do? Yeah, so uh, there is, you know, the repairing it versus reconstructing. So reconstructing is what is classically done, um, and that is where you put a graft uh, in the knee, um, and typically either autograft from the own, from the patient or allograft from the cadaver, and that's what I do. There is some uh, literature uh, recently talking about repairing or trying to stitch the ACL. Um, it's not something I've done. Uh, I don't see a lot of patients who I think would be candidates for it, but I'm aware that it's being talked about. But in, in my practice, I recommend always reconstructing and either using the patient's own tissue or cadaver tissue. And, you know, I'll just go on and say the way that we decide that uh, is 
you know, there's some good data and literature that kind of helps me guide that process. So in my younger patients, and we kind of use 25 as this cutoff, um, I always recommend using their own tissue, whether that be part, a portion of their patellar tendon or a portion of their hamstrings. And then my older patients, I think cadaver graft uh, is very accept, uh, acceptable. And that just has to do with the data we've seen as far as risk of failure in younger patients when using a cadaver graft for a variety of reasons. We don't know, but there's it's clear. And so um, I, I've sort of for my younger patients, I use real tissue. For my older patients, I think using cadaver or an allograft is acceptable. Yeah. Now, Chris, this is going to be a tough question, but have you ever heard of the song, the knee bone's connected to the thigh bone? <laughs> Say yes. I have. I have. <laughs> we'll be right back after the break with Dr. Chris Dodson. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented in part by Recovery Centers of America. When needed, call RCA, 1-888-RECOVERY. Well, we've learned certainly a lot of great information today from Dr. Chris Dodson from Rotham Orthopedics, who also uh, is the team physician for the Philadelphia 76ers and the team orthopod for the, the Eagles. Let's talk about Tom Brady just for a second. It's the day, this is the big day of the year when football players and football fans are ready. Tom Brady, the title of the oldest player in the NFL usually belongs to a kicker, if I'm right. But this year, for the first time ever, this 43-year-old quarterback is officially the oldest active player in the NFL. Chris, how does he do it? He's escaped injury for so long. And I would think, far be it from me, but his throwing arm should last into his 50s, but his legs must be the key to staying strong and moving quickly to avoid hits from players that are half his age. Yeah, you know, he's certainly incredible. I mean, it's, uh, you know, whether or not you're a fan of him, uh, you know, the teams he plays on, it's certainly an incredible athlete. Uh, and it's, it's impressive. I'm 43, and the thought of me playing in the NFL seems impossible. So, um, it's really impressive what he's done. You know, I do not have a relationship with Tom or don't know him at all, but I've heard um, him publicly talk about his program. Uh, it's something he's very proud of, and I think he even has a website and has a program at a place where other athletes can train. And, and the word that he uses a lot is, is pliability, and he talks about how that's been important for him and, and how he doesn't really focus so much on, on, on strength training, but on being pliable. And I've thought about that word and I've thought about the way he describes it. And it, it, it does make sense to me. And the way that he's, uh, you know, he had this documentary, Tom versus Tom, and I remember watching it. And he describes that, you know, the more pliable his tissues are, um, and, and that implies, you know, um, that they can stretch and can give. You know, when he feels like he gets hit or when he has uh, an issue, that rather than um, the tissue tearing or ligament tearing or rupturing, he feels like there's almost a give in his body and it prevents him from getting hit, excuse me, prevents him from getting injured. And then if you lack that pliability, almost like a stick breaking, if there's no give in the tissue, then it can, you know, for lack of a better word, break and cause more significant injury. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've seen some of the stuff he does. It makes a lot of sense. Um, and, you know, it's obviously working for him. So, you know, it's something that, you know, we should all, you know, think about in the healthcare world. And I think he's, uh, what, what little I've read about him, he's so <laughs> disciplined with his working out and his diet and all those things, I'm sure, uh, play a role in his safety and, and good luck, too. Um, if people want to read about uh, 
different issues like meniscal tears or ACL tears, they can always visit the RothmanOrtho.com website. Um, I think 43 must be the magic age, Chris. You're 43. He's 43. My husband started to play ice hockey at age 43. Figure that one. <laughs> um, so finally, I guess I want to ask if how does a patient who's had a recent trauma or they start to have knee pain, how do I know that it's time to see an orthopedic surgeon and get a checkup? Yeah, so some signs of serious injury. Did you feel a pop? Uh, did you notice significant swelling or bruising? Are you having difficulty walking or, or moving the uh, involved uh, uh, appendage? Is there deformity? Is something not look right? Uh, if those are present, then you certainly could have a, a serious injury. Um, in general, we for less serious injuries, you talk about the rice concept to rest the area, to ice it, apply compression, elevate. And certainly, with if that is not resolved within a week, seek out medical advice. But for my more serious signs, I think you should uh, seek the care of a, of a medical professional as soon as possible because sometimes delay in treatment can affect the outcome. Beautiful. Chris, thank you. And remember, you are the team orthopod for the Philadelphia Eagles. But if you're from the Star Tour, you say I-G-G-L-E-S, the Philadelphia <laughs> Eagles. Thank you for being with us. Dr. Chris Dodson, you're a star from Rothman Orthopedics. Thank you so much. My privilege to be here. for your real champion. I call this segment Give and Go. Before 2020, most people couldn't define the word pandemic. Now it's a household word. But when you talk to Andre Wright, he'll tell you that the hardships of COVID-19 weren't new to him. He'd experienced the pandemic of poverty for his whole life. So in facing the challenges of 2020, he'd already had plenty of practice. Andre grew up in North Philadelphia in what he describes as an impoverished, rough neighborhood, but with a great geographic location. He didn't have much in the way of personal or family resources, but he lived near a great recreation center at 26th and Master, which was his safe haven. He could walk to the art museum or Boathouse Row. He went on to Newman College where he was a basketball star, and he brought his degree in behavioral health counseling back to his childhood middle school as a therapeutic support staff member. Enter Caleb Jones. After attending Westchester University, he completed a master's degree in child therapy. He was also a new hire for therapeutic support staff. And it so happens that Andre and Caleb both grew up on 29th Street near Master. They lived a block apart, just far enough to be in different neighborhoods. Well, destiny brought these men together. They both knew the challenges of life in North Philly and both realized their success was in large part a result of support from their mentors. Andre looked up to Alonzo, a big brother in the neighborhood who organized basketball leagues. Caleb thanks his father for being a force in his community, a man who also organized basketball games and welcomed the most troubled kids. He showed them love when they had no other positive role models. It was 2009. The school district of Philadelphia had just cut funding for after-school and extracurricular programs. Social media were gaining in popularity, making it easier to organize flash mobs and bad behavior, which didn't strike Andre or Caleb as wholesome activities for tweens or teens. The spending cuts prompted the two men to start weekend basketball games. First day, five kids arrived. By two weeks later, there were 30. The enthusiasm was contagious, and soon they needed more space. They moved to PAL, Police Athletic League, the rec center, and every Friday night the gym was filled. Two sessions, one for 5th and 6th graders, one for 7th and 8th graders. 
Now known as Give and Go Athletics, the program looks at sports as the entry point for providing mentorship and structure for kids who are brimming with potential but often lack access to opportunity. Sports offer so many lessons, teamwork, practice leads to results, the value of lifelong physical exercise. Their mantra is growth, grit, and game time. Learn the fundamentals through drills and the value of practice. Be responsible, be on time, learn how to take care of injuries, learn how to win, and learn how to lose. Then you graduate to game time, apply what you've learned in practice, and compete at a higher level. Overall, the goal is to teach mental toughness and resilience. Kids will acquire skills that transfer from playground to classroom to the street to college and to life. Give and Go now serves a thousand children and includes baseball and a recess program with snacks, games, and activities, providing mentorship and teaching leadership. Their work has been recognized with the prestigious Wanamaker Award. These are two men who were moved by their mentors and now walk in their footsteps. They realize all children need love and attention so they can learn discipline and respect. In turn, the kids don't want to disappoint their mentors. Give and Go Athletics, named after the basketball drill, in which a player passes to a teammate, then cuts to the net, gets the return pass, and shoots. As I spoke to both Andre and Caleb, I quickly realized the meaning of their mission, to give these kids a chance and help them go forward. We salute you, Andre Wright and Caleb Jones, your real champions. To support their mission, visit giveandgoathletics.org. A special thank you to my friend and fellow Hawk from St. Joseph's University, Mr. Jerry Lister. He nominated Give and Go. Jerry himself was a basketball star at St. Joe's Prep, with Philadelphia legend Mo Howard also starred at the Prep, then University of Maryland, and then in Pro Ball. They are both board members of Give and Go. Tune in next week for our very special Valentine's show. Our guest, Dr. Thomas Solicito, Chairman of the Department of Oral Medicine at Penn School of Dental Medicine. This month, get your blue lights ready. We're asking listeners to put a strand of blue lights on the front door of your home or workplace, even a blue light bulb on your porch during the first week in March, Colon Cancer Awareness Month. More next week. Listen to all our shows on yourradiodoctor.net. Send us the story of a champion at info at yourradiodoctor.com. While you get your chili and snick snacks ready for the big game tonight, keep it here for the sounds of Sinatra. And always remember that your health is your wealth. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Krause at 267-261-3428. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program has been pre-recorded.